Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we're discussing the X-Men movies, especially X2, X3, and X-Men Days of Future Past, and questions of identity, especially queerness, disability, and other ways in which the X-Men in these movies are parallels and metaphors for questions in our own lives. All this and more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. My name is Matthew. I'm joined today by Brand Grinslade. Brand is a connection of mine who I've been enjoying talking to about these questions, especially once I knew I wanted to jump into the idea of the X-Men and questions of identity that Brand would be a great person to have on this podcast. They haven't been a guest before, but I'm really excited to have them with us. So, Brand, how are you doing today? No, not too bad. How are you doing? Pretty well, pretty well. It's been a long day. We uh, already recorded an episode on WandaVision. That's going to go up the week before this one, but I'm super excited for this one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to hearing that WandaVision one. It sounds great. Well, and it's funny, too, because um, because of the events of WandaVision, uh, I'm going to try and say this in as non-spoilery a way as possible, but I'll say that there's something about WandaVision that might make people think of the X-Men movies. So I wound up going back and watching a lot of the old X-Men movies because of WandaVision, and that's what got me thinking about this topic and really wanting to dive into it. So I'm super excited we're going to get this chance. I want to do a quick moment, though, before we dive into that, just to say a quick thank you. I recently started a Patreon for my um, podcasts. You can find it on Patreon at The Ethical Panda. And um, three people have already signed up, Mary McQuery, Nate Muzzy, and Ashley Coffin. Uh, thank you so much to the three of you. You're making what I'm doing possible. Um, podcasting is great. It's not free. Uh, it really means so much to me to get that kind of support from you all. And to anyone else who's thinking about ways to support the podcast, please give that a, you know, take a look. There's great things you can get, uh, and there'll be wonderful goodies that the three of them will be getting as patrons. So, Thank you so much for them. Let's now dive back into our main topic. And, Brian, let me just start here. For you, the X-Men movies, what what do these movies mean to you? How, are you a fan of them? What What's your kind of feeling on them? So, yeah, I've, I've been an X-Men fan since I was probably years old, maybe even 10. Mm-hmm. Forever, as long as I've been reading comics. Um, and they've always kind of social justice things. Right. I guess is the right way to put it, right, you know? Yeah, I think there's always been a social justice spin to them. Episodes we put up a couple weeks ago about the history of comic books, uh, Jess Plummer and I talked about, you know, how there's often the idea that the X-Men are supposed to be all about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Now, that's somewhat reductive, but there's some truth to that. But that's certainly about the idea of, you know, how do we work for justice and what is our identity and how do we find ourselves and how do we, you know, the ways of, of... uh, dealing with oppression as, as the oppressed group and things like that. These movies in particular, though, I feel like really take an interesting spin on, on identity. What, what do you think about the way these movies in, in particular told the story was, was really appealing to you? I mean, I loved, well, obviously I loved seeing beloved comic book characters come to life in a film. Of course. Uh, and, you know, the Brian Singer's no slouch. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's well telling to be told. Yeah. For sure. Um, but yeah, beyond that, uh, just upon watching them, like the X Men over the years morph with the major social justice issue. Mm-hmm. You know, they always have. And so this was like late 90s, early aughts, right? Right. When these were coming out. And so a lot of the more modern queer conversations were just starting to happen. Uh, and it became, it did become a big thing about like being queer and, and having an identity you could accept about yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. It's kind of what I wanted us to talk about today is the way that 
these these uh, this these versions of the of the story seem to really look at. <clears throat> I mean, I think there's a number of metaphors you can read in, but they really seem to push hard, especially on the one on queerness, which has been talked about a lot, which we're going to talk about some today, and also on disability, which is one that I I particularly identify with. And so I think for me, these movies really spoke to me because so much of it seems to be about this idea of of discovering your identity, you know, and that especially with characters like Mystique and with Hank, um, there's so much of this searching for, you know, should I try to be accepted? Should I try to fit in? Should I try to be who I am and and not not care about how others fit in? Um, how, how do these movies speak to you in terms of that, especially in regard to queerness and issues of gender and sexuality? So that's an interesting one because I'm one of I'm one of those like late blooming queers. Mm-hmm. I come, you know, I didn't I didn't know when I was 14 that I I was non-binary or that I was pan or that you know any of that had any bearing on my life. Right. Uh, I was just thinking, you know, I have a Pacific Rim history class. <laughs> so I didn't really have a coming out because I didn't realize that I was queer until I was in my 30s, probably. Mm. Um, and so seeing that experience um, actually resonated a lot more like I was seeing stuff that my friends went. Yeah, um, I can see that. You know, and and it built empathy in me which I thought was really cool. Like mm-hmm. thinking back on it this last week, really hard. Um, a lot of the things that I realized, like that I got from the X movies is like, what do I say when my friend comes out to me? What do I say? Right. When, when, and like, do I act like the parents? No. Do I act like the Senator? No. Do I act like, you know, any, any one of the different characters. And I, and I kind of found weirdly, I found like the area that I liked in that. And in the mm-hmm. X universe, and strangely, almost like some kind of weird comic book horoscope, it actually fits. Like, mm. and that's crazy, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I I've certainly had a number of moments in, on my own journeys of discovery. I, I I've known I was uh, gone back and forth on identities of, of bi or pan or, or some version of queerness since I was in late high school, but. Like you, I, I only figured out being non-binary much later in life. I'm in my early 40s. And it's fascinating to me the way that there are these kind of aha moments. Like I went back and watched these movies and I don't think I was – I think I was very much in that mindset of, oh, this is all about civil rights and therefore like you know black and white and things like that. And the first time someone told me that they loved these movies because they were a metaphor for queerness and for things like that, I, I was like, wait, really? Is that the movie I saw? And then watching them again this last week, I was like, oh, oh, oh okay. There, there's so much here that I didn't see that I wonder if it was hitting hitting me on some level. Because you're right. the I feel like the movies have a lot to say, not just to people who are figuring their own identities out, but about how, you know, you can be a parent and be trying to be loving or, or helpful and do it the totally wrong way. The way, you know, uh, Angel's parents, for example, do in, in oh, these things. Yeah. Anything like that. And so yeah. I think you're right that these movies can be a great metaphor and lesson, not just for someone searching for their own identity, but for how to support them and be a part of that person's life when you're one of their loved ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, these, you know, always, uh, we always use the examples that are given to us, right? And in X-Men, we see early examples, like I said, of how to interact with someone who's going through a transition like that or a change. Right, right. And just to, um, 
I want to kind of step back a bit just for those folks who haven't seen these movies in a long time or maybe haven't seen them. I want to kind of explain a little bit what we're talking about. What are the sort of things that we that we see? And, and Brand, please feel free to add them as well. I, I think it's, the, it's that the way that the movies frame it is, first of all, we start with teenage characters. You know, the, the very beginning of the first X-Men movie is Rogue having this moment of like, you know, teenage, you know, romantic sexual exploration and, and hurting the boy. And that there's a strong element of, you know, it's as a teenager that you start to, you know, figure out what you are, um, which is obviously a, um, you know, kind of a strong connection there. Although since the movie's done, the the age of people figuring out their sexuality and gender is getting lower and lower and lower. But then it, it continues with this idea of, you know, the fear that other people have and the sense of, you know, uh, is this something that can be cured and would you want it to be cured? And is it something that you should be proud of or or be in people's face about? And I think, especially in the second and third movies, uh, X2 and X3, but then also very much in X-Men First Class, we really hit hard on this idea of identity to be sure but also just about you know the the we made reference there about parental acceptance you know that there's some very hard stories in both of those movies about the parent who doesn't accept the child or who wants to force the child to be different than they are um i think that's where a lot of the 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 queer metaphor comes from yeah absolutely and also even in uh, in rogue we see an ex what we'd probably just call like sexual liberation and information in her life right Mm-hmm. Uh, she becomes kind of the identity character. She's self-hating. Her parents are afraid of her. This is where a young queer person might be, right? They might feel right. like they can't touch anyone or they can't do anything. And then we see her go through these different social groups, you know, kind of on a smaller scale in the movie, and we see different queer communities. You know, mm-hmm. in the Brotherhood, we see, like, just absolutely militantly queer people and in professor x we see the people who are a little bit more in the closet or like trying to be accept you know quote unquote acceptable queers which don't right. exist by the way that's <laughs> just not a real thing i i, I once heard a great metaphor uh, for those who don't know um 80s queer history they may not understand these i'll explain them but that it basically said um you can best understand professor x and magneto as looking at um the human rights campaign versus act up yeah. Um, which is in for those human rights campaign is a it, it's a very you know very well uh, it the human rights campaign is a um, group that works for LGBT and uh, queer, queer rights and and does some great work but many people see it as kind of very moderate. Act up is these are the people who were like going into Catholic churches and throwing like uh, red paint as though it was human blood on Catholic priests to yell at you know because to protest their treatment of gay people and of AIDS and stuff like right. that. So just that that's the metaphor that I'm going for there. Yes, Pepperidge Farm remembers. Uh huh. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I think that's a great point. And there's another metaphor though that I also see in these that I also want to talk about here because it's the other one that really resonates for me. And I'm I'm not sure how intentional it was, but it's definitely one that that it hits, um, which is disability. Um, I'm a person who has a prosthetic leg. I spend about half my time in a wheelchair. And one of, obviously with the X-Men, there is this element of physical difference. And, um, you know, there's an extent to which one of the things that the X-Men deal with a lot is the degree to which that they can, that their physical differences freak people out and that people get upset seeing them. And so there's a sense of that they have to hide. And this for me especially really resonates because, you know, 
one of the things I think that, that really marks the, the disability community is, is that there's a wide range. And a lot of it may often have to do with how well do you – the term that's, that's used that I, I don't have a problem with. Some people do have a problem with it, so I'll acknowledge it. It's, it's a, in itself a political term, but it's passing. You know, in terms of like, mm. if I'm walking down the hall using my prosthetic leg, most people won't be able to look at me and know that I'm disabled. Right. Whereas someone else who's born in a particular way or has like, you know, um, something else is, is different about them. There's no way they could not do that. They're going to walk down the, you know, in the same right. way, I think that like um, Storm can walk down the street and no one, you know, unless her eyes start glowing, no one's going to think that she's anything different. Right. Nightcrawler doesn't get to do that. Mystique doesn't get to do that unless she changes herself. Right. And I think with both disability and with, to some extent, um, very much with gender and also with sexuality issues, that, that issue of passing, there's such a powerful metaphor there about, you know, how much do you or do you not need to, to look, quote unquote, normal in order to like, what do you owe it to others to not, to fit into their perceptions of how someone should look? Yeah, the, the, the huge one that hits that for me is literally all of Beast's storyline yes is is just a story of someone who has passing privilege but is quickly losing mm. yeah say, say more on that what you mean there um so beast in the in the beginning timeline wise but far movie wise to explain a little tiny bit Beast starts out looking like an average human male right mm-hmm. um and then as time goes on, he becomes more blue and more furry and more quote-unquote bestial, right? Right. Uh, and it's all throughout that early part, he's trying to find ways to suppress it, right? Mm-hmm. To hide it like it's shameful. And then when we see him quote-unquote later in life, but in the earlier movies, we see this, you know, noble, intelligent, proud blue furry guy right who's who's comfortable in himself and so we can see this journey from from passing to accepting that that that's not a thing <laughs> yeah and i think there's a really power i think his story is one of my favorites and i mean one of the ironies there is that it's his attempt to you know at the beginning you only can see his issues if he takes his shoes off because then you can see that he's got these you know uh, kind of animalistic feet um and it's his attempts to cure himself that makes him blue all over and makes him mm-hmm. so much more look different. Um, and you're right. With him, you get such this wonderful story of self-acceptance. Of, And I think one of the things I always wish the story had, had a chance to explore a little bit more and never really did quite as much as I would have liked is the potential romance between Mystique and Beast. And this mm-hmm. is in the, the newer version of the movies. But because I think in some ways uh, Mystique goes really on a, a similar journey. And I think it's why... I'm not surprised it's a very like quoted and memed moment that one of the most powerful moments in the newer version of the, of the movies is that moment where Eric is talking to Mystique and says, like, I want to see the real you. And she shifts into because at this point, I think she's looking like a, an older version of herself. And so she shifts into the human presentation that she makes of herself most often. And then he says again, no, I mean the real you. And so she shifts again and becomes um, you know, the actual like blue person that she is. Right. And then he says perfection because he's saying like, I don't want you to hide. I don't want you to try and pass. I want you to be literally exactly who you are. Right. And that, in that way, also the, the metaphor of Magneto as the queer kink community is pretty incredible too. Mm-hmm. In terms of like the, like 
here's where you're welcome. Here's where you're going to be at home. Right. Well, and like of more forcibly ripping, not ripping away, but like allowing someone to shed their boundaries in a much Mm -hmm. more direct and I might say aggressive way in some cases. (laughs) I I think Magneto can sometimes be that person who, um, there's not as much of this recently, but you know, there was a while when the, um, uh, kind of malicious outing of people was, was a common tactic. Mm -hmm. Um, and is that kind of what you're saying? Like sometimes Magneto can kind of lend into that regard. Oh yeah, absolutely that too. But also, yeah, exactly. Malicious outing or, or even like forcing you to deal with yourself a little bit more than probably Mm -hmm. is normal. I think that's very true. I think it's very, I I hate to use the word normal. I apologize. No, I mean, I think, I think every time we use it, there's a, you know, we're always making the quote marks that you, of course, can't see because this is a podcast. But I think there's right, always some level exactly. of, you know, the, I think to some extent, it's a big part of what these movies are all about is about challenging the idea of, is there a normal that we deviate from or is our existence, you know, changing the very perception of normality itself? Like that, right. that maybe that thinking that, you know, straightness or non-mutation or whatever it is, is the normal or is mm-hmm. the default? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's. Big agree, a thousand percent thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and three, really, like with the with the entire cure plotline, does a lot for that for that mm-hmm. part of the discussion. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So in in the third movie, there is this idea that <clears throat> kind of what Hank was working on has now has now occurred, and there is this attempt, there is this ability now to cure your uh, mutation, and it's just a quick like if it gets in your blood at all. Then you're instantly, um, again, quote unquote, cured. The X gene is removed, and you are now returned to being a non mutant. Uh, what 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 were your kind of feelings? What was your, what's your take on um, how that storyline was played out? So it's kind of a weird story, especially mirroring uh, what the first singer X Men's plotline was. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the it's the exact inverse of that, right? Um, and that's actually the a large part of the conversation that's had in queer spaces and has been since the 70s, right? right. Um, you know, it started with, well, can we cure this? And then, you know, is this wrong? And then there was the, the like you said, like the very act up, very militant queer side of things that went off and did their, you know, went off and like spawned a whole bunch of really awesome things. Mm-hmm. But, you know that are one way of doing things and then the kind of more moderate like queer community that tried to make it a little bit more i guess the i guess make it palatable with the quotation fingers right it's, right it doesn't need to be made palatable but they tried to dress it up for quote unquote polite society yeah i mean i, I always thought one of the things that's very powerful about the way that the cure is presented is it's originally presented in this benevolent way of like, wouldn't some people want this? And I, in a bit, I think we should talk about the fact that in the X-Men universe, I think it's, it's important that this happens. There are some folks who might want it, but we very quickly get to a point where it's weaponized, you know, and we quite literally see when Magneto and his army shows up to try and like, you know, uh, take over part of what they're doing is, um, the, the way that people, the military is stopping them is firing these dart guns filled with it that literally like take away your your mutant power. And especially when you realize that we live in a world where, you know, 
even if you want to say like, well, what if a person didn't want, what if a person wanted to be straight or wanted to be cis? Should there be some way to allow that? Like, I think it's a horrific idea, but even if you want to do a thought experiment there, it's important to understand that the vast majority of times that there are um, offers to do this, it's non-consensual. You know, it is teenagers right. being sent against their will to these abusive, like horrific places that are also mm-hmm. proven not to work. Like it's right. You know, well, and uh, just like in the movies, the cure was, you know, eventually temporary. It was just suppression. It wasn't actually full I, cure. Yeah. That's not my. I don't get you to even. I I think that's. I think that's true in one of the comic stories, but not in the movie itself. Because in the movie, they certainly show like that. Like Magneto, by the end, does not have his powers. Right, but so uh, this is where we'll go. This is where we'll go a little bit further and say in in the Wolverine, he's fully mm. recovered from the cure's effects. Oh, okay. I I had not gotten to that part. And he had taken <laughs> and he had taken four doses of the cure. Right, like he got hit a bunch and. Oh, okay. I it's it's funny in the um <laughs> the the X Men universe has bent back in and of itself so many different times. Oh yeah, the, the timelines that I, I I had forgotten that part of it. But okay, yeah. So yeah, I see what you mean mm-hmm. there. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a tiny detail. <laughs> yeah, but but even in the, even in the the X Men movie, even in just X three, even if you take the idea, for me, there's something so painful about the idea that like. Um, you know, of that, that forcible removal of it. And I, I remember yeah. feeling very conflicted because, you know, Magneto and his group, but as always, I always wish they painted Magneto a little bit differently because Magneto is kind of the person I want to be a hero because I mostly agree with him, even if I disagree with his methods. Yeah. Except that he wants to kill an innocent person in order to stop the cure being made and et cetera. But the scene in which, um, you know, Magneto and even all these other um, mutants who are fighting with him are just shot with these darts and then immediately lose all their power and become again, quote unquote normal. Like, I mean, to me, that's a horrific scene. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's it's, it's the, you know, it's the rapid firing of suppression, right. Of, of suppression culture, which is really all that these so-called, uh, what's pray the gay away nonsense and things like that. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's just different kind of suppression culture. It's right. Right. It, in many ways, it reminds me of. Um, I know this doesn't seem to happen as much today. I'm I'm left-handed, and no one ever tried to force me out of it. But I was really sinister. To, yeah, I, I've <laughs> spoken to people of older generations who were basically taught, like you know, be right-handed, like use your right hand, and they wound up learning to use their right hand, and just were just never had very good manual dexterity because they were left-handed. Mm-hmm. They just kind of learned how to pass as right-handed instead. Yeah. Um and I think that's very much the the same kind of thing here. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and and you, the people you see wanting to take the cure here are the people who feel like they can't pass anymore, right? Or that right. they were so old <laughs> that they're forced into those kind of social structures. And here, I think, is one of the most honestly ethically complex questions that we're going to talk about in terms of the idea of the cure, because. And here's where, as someone who relates to this as both a queer person and a disabled person, I I am almost of two minds because one of the things that the movie does is it shows that there might be someone who does want to take the cure and that maybe that's not terrible. Like Rogue does wind up wanting to take the cure. And I'm curious your thoughts on it because for me, if this is a metaphor for queerness, then I think there's something really – there's a part of me that wants to be like – no rogue like you should never feel like you need to be normal there's nothing wrong with this kind of identity there is no such thing as normal 
as a disabled person, this is a much more contentious issue where there's an awful lot of folks who have a very strong, like, you know, the idea of curing disability is really problematic. And like, there's a lot of disabilities that are just differences and it's, you know, differently abled. And that, you know, like in the deaf community, there's lots of fighting about cochlear implants and things like that. And I'm I'm not, that's not my lane. I'm not going to clients try and speak for that. But even like, you know, for myself, um, you know, there are many people who, um, the, the idea of a medical cure for disability will raise the question of like, why is there something wrong or is it just different? But you also do have disability. Like for me, a wheelchair or a prosthetic leg, these are assistive technologies. If you told me tomorrow that there was a way to genetically regrow my leg, I'd probably take it. Yeah, And I think absolutely. a lot of other disabled people would. And I think that there's, to me, I think it's one of the great, it's one of the ways in which I think here, the metaphor for queerness might break down a little bit, but it becomes more of a metaphor of disability or of some other things, because I honestly, I really like that Rogue wants to take the cure, because I feel like I mm-hmm. can understand why for her, if her difference is that she goes through life never being able to really experience human contact in the same way, then yeah, I can imagine if maybe that is the choice she wants to make. Mm-hmm. What, what's your, what's your, where do you fall on that one? So I am also a cyborg. Uh, it okay. is, it is known. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have, I do not have a working pancreas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I replace it with a pump and a sensor that I check every day. And, you know, uh, could I take, could I take, if I could take that away and get a pancreas back? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> right. You know, um, if somebody came to me and said, Hey, you can stop, you can, you could have gender euphoria all the time and, and all you, and, and just be on the binary and that's cool and you're going to, you can be happy. I'd be like, go away. Yeah. N- no. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade the way that I feel about myself when I feel good about myself for any other amount of security. Mm hmm. Because that's not wrong. Right. Yeah, no, and I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's, I think one of the reasons why I like it so much is there's often a sense that these identities can be, you know, monolithic. You know, and people will be like, mm-hmm. okay, well, what do black people think? What do queer people think? What do disabled people think? What do women think? Whatever it is. And I, I think more and more we're trying to move away from those kind of ideas. And I really like that we wind up in the X-Men movie is being told like that different X-Men can feel different ways. I mean, one of my favorite scenes is when rogue is saying to uh, rogue and storm are arguing and storm is saying to rogue, like, you know, you shouldn't ever feel this way. There's nothing wrong with you. You shouldn't want to have this cure. And I've seen many great memes that this isn't my original thought by any, by any stretch, but I've seen a lot of great memes that are basically like, wait, storm, you get to walk through life doing anything you want to. And also you get to control the weather. Rogue literally can't touch another human being. Like those are two people with vastly different experiences. And there's Mm -hmm. an extent to which I don't know how I would, I don't think I would call it passing privilege necessarily or something like that. But storm has a storm has a privilege that rogue does not storm has a ability to live comfortably with her power, with her difference in a way rogue doesn't and right i, th- well, I think I, go ahead oh i mean i mean we do we, we know about that privilege with with both characters because mm-hmm. you know, I, they don't go into it as much in the movies i don't think but storm is raised as a goddess 
Mm, right? Storm right. is Storm is raised in a supportive environment that that deeply cherishes and perhaps overblows her specialness, but deeply <laughs> cherishes her specialness in in its own right. And so she has this impression of her differentness as being okay. Right. Um, and and I should just say for those who've seen the movies and are confused, Storm, as introduced to us in the X Men first class world, doesn't have that necessarily. But right. but Storm from the comics, and I think Storm in the the Halle Berry Storm does, if not the other version of Storm. Mm. Again, this gets super complicated. We're talking about like five different versions of the same characters, but but and I think I'm like I think you could make an argument of saying like that again in the metaphor, you know, the the, the idea is always that there should never be the, the problem isn't being disabled. The problem is a world that is built for able people, right? And I think. But I wonder with someone like Rogue, like, I don't know what building a world for someone who can't touch someone else would look like. And and her case is obviously a quite extreme and, and is where the metaphor breaks down. But I think it's also, a, you know, the instance of like, for me, I would love to live in a world in which everything is wheelchair ramped and I want to be able to. And for those who can't use a prosthetic leg, I don't think it's right that I get to be able to do this thing that others can't. And so that's more of a reason to fight for wheelchair access for all. Mm-hmm. So I Is have that a, a reason point. why it's wrong for me to use a prosthetic leg? Well, I, again, I don't want the <laughs> this podcast to be about my own cycle babble about that, but I think that's, I, I'm just using that as a uh, an, an entry point into, I think, the larger question the show is raising, which is that you can have two people from the same group who are facing the same kind of oppression and they're experiencing it very differently. So yeah, so so for you, when you see Rogue take the cure, does that feel like a like a disappointment? Does it feel like you can understand why she wants that? Um, what, where do you fall on that moment? So I absolutely think that I I understand her and the story's kind of place with that. Mm-hmm. You know how she comes to that, what what she wants from it. You know having having a to her maladaptive uh, kind of difference, right? Right. Um, but then also that it's a difference to uh, those around her theoretically, but mm-hmm. it's not actually right because it's within her control. Right. Um, so her deciding to take the cure is her accepting that she doesn't want this or it isn't this thing, right? Right. Uh, because ultimately that's what it comes down to is, is you are period, end of statement. Like... You would have right. to literally be rewritten at the genetic level to not be. Right. And I think one of the reasons why I like it is it's this nice reminder that whatever we think about, like, the, opp- the oppression happens in groups and, like, political movements happen about groups. But that groups are made up of individuals and individuals don't always feel and think the same way. And yeah. I think there's a nice reminder there of, like in our own world, you know, any solution that is that is generally accepted to be for, you know, the great majority of a particular group or a particular, you know, population, there may still be individuals in that who feel differently. And I mm-hmm. I think I like that that Rogue gets to be because one of the things I think that happens a lot with identity politics and um the um X Men Dark Phoenix, I, I we talked we did an episode about this recently. I think this they really highlight this well. The danger of kind of the model minority idea. And that right. like 
you know, if you're a minority, if you're an oppressed group, the way you win oppression is by showing the 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 uber population, you know, just how great you are, and that all of you are not scary and perfectly mm-hmm. normal, and that you know, you know, it's that kind of like, look, we just we're gay and we just want to have two point three kids and a white picket right. fence and all that. When yeah, when I referred to it, quote unquote acceptable gays, that's yeah, that's what I was talking about earlier. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and that, but that you know what, as much as there should be a pushback against that. There are going to, you know, there's nothing wrong with being the one person who says, I do want to marry someone and have 2.3 kids and a white picket fence and live in, I mean, there's all sorts of problems with suburbia and, and all that. But even putting that aside, like, that that being part of a, a minority group doesn't mean you should have to have the, like, I'm going to burn everything down. It's okay to want that and just want it with someone of your same gender or, or five people of your of whatever genders, whatever it might be. Right. And so I guess I, just, I really resonate with Rogue's story in that regard of... That she gets to have that that her her decision about the cure doesn't have to be a statement of what everyone should do about the cure. It's about what her particular thing is. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Absolutely. So we we touched on it before. The last big one I wanted to touch on is the idea of the parental response. Um, let, let's talk about parents, especially in X two and X three, because they they don't seem to come off very well in terms of how they handle identity. No, it's it's <laughs> to say the least. Mm-hmm. And and to me, I think the the two obvious ones that I think are really easy to talk about being a problem are, um, in X two, it's um, I'm going to get these names wrong. The what what's the name of the the Stryker. general striker? Yeah, striker is using his own son as basically this weapon, and it's it's horrible and terrible. And then in X three, Angel's parents are um you know, again, really quite terrible to him and like where he's literally having to cut off his own wings as a teenager, which is just, Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, it was such a painful metaphor of, you know, all the ways in which people literally self-injure themselves and mentally self-injure themselves and attempt to to fit in and to not be different. But I thought the the one that was really powerful was in the uh, most recent movies where they go to, I think it's Bobby's house where his parents, where his... Because here the parents aren't evil. They're not malicious. They're just so – they just wish Bobby could be normal. They just wish right. Bobby could be not qu- – and, and just the degree of uncomfort and of like judgment from them. I, in some ways, it, I think it's even much more insidious because here it's not evil parents. It's parents who think they're being loving but are being so hateful in their lack of acceptance. Yeah, absolutely. And that's – I – see that even in my own life obviously my 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 dad is great he's a wonderful person and i love him very much sometimes he has a hard time with having a queer child Mm -hmm. uh and that's okay you know but he's 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 at very least not overly like polite about it and lying to me about having a hard time i guess is what i'm trying to say right like Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think I, I appreciate the, the, the personal story there. And I think for me, especially what resonates in, in in this particular moment from the movies was it sounds like your dad is trying to some extent. And what I what I feel like I get from from Bobby's parents is it's much more the sense of your queerness is a bother to us. You know, why can't you don't you realize the it isn't said in this, but it's it's one I, I, I think of in all these kind of movies all the time. I think it's actually said in the movie Pride, which is a great movie of like, don't you realize what you're doing to your mother? You know, the sense of like, 
it's being said to the mutants as though it's said to to queer kids or different kids all the time of don't you realize how much stress you're putting on us in us having to accept you and that's not fair to us exactly yeah and i i don't think i i eloquated my side of that well but yes that's what i'm that's what i'm trying to say Mm -hmm. so what is it for you that resonates about that about those moments of um you know bobby's bobby's parents sort of so, you know, not looking like they're, they want to turn their son into a weapon and not looking like they want their son to hurt himself, but so clearly not being comfortable and so clearly not being okay with who Bobby and his friends are. Right. And I guess what really struck me about that was that it shows the range, like a range of interactions up to and including that there is such a thing as malicious acceptance, right? Mm, say more on that. Um, they accept Bobby for who he is. They don't like it. And right. they, they, but they, they don't tell him he has to be different, but they keep saying, why are you different? Right. Right. As though um, it's his choice of his and though it's something he could control. Right. Well, and it's, uh, my brain is in this mode because it's right near Passover, but, um, you know, it's, it's the, the, the wicked child who says, why do you do these things? Mm-hmm. Uh, and excludes themselves from the group, right? It's it's right. Why it's, do you do this instead of why? Not? Right, why do we do this? We do this, right? And it's that. So it's that malicious acceptance. Well, I accept that you're doing this, but why? You know, right? Um, and that's so we see that from parents all the time in mm-hmm. the queer community. We see, well, of course, I'm always going to love you, but I really wish I had grandbabies. For example, yeah. being a huge one. I, I heard from an adult in my life when I came out as uh, being bi, well, I just hope you don't get AIDS. Which oh. was, you know, again, it, it was this was said in the early 90s and it was very much the scare and I very much understood the the concern with which it was said. But it's also so it, – it's this othering, you know. It's this idea of like right. I, I just wish you could be normal. You know, the concern right. wasn't I wish that you lived in a world in which, you know, your sexuality wasn't stigmatized to the fact that no one cares about this terrible disease that's happening. It's – I hope that you don't have this terrible thing happen to you that's happening to those other people. Exactly. Well, and that's, it's also like, that's where we get into microaggressions, right? Mm. Like these, these moments of frustration that vent in small behaviors. Right. You know, uh, for example, having a friend who might be NB and, and referring to their gender at birth or their assigned gender at birth, uh, on accident because you've known them for so many years, right? Right. Um, at some point, that becomes malicious acceptance when you're like, well, my friend's never been a jerk to me about it, but they keep saying, you know, that I am X gender and not the gender that I have in my heart, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and that becomes a microaggression. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think just the... As people have heard me talk about the X-Men and other things, including the one I did just a couple weeks ago on Dark Phoenix, no, I'm not a big fan of Charles Xavier by any means. Um, and just the degree to which he constantly, you know, for Mystique to claim herself as Mystique is an important part of her accepting her identity and not trying to hide anymore. Right. And I, I think you could say Raven is her dead name. And that for Professor, you know, Charles Xavier, Professor X, to continually refer to her as Raven, even after she's taken on this identity... It, even after she's claimed her identity as Mystique, it, it's dead naming her. It's it's mm-hmm. that same kind of thing of like he wants to say that the normal her is, you know, the with pale skin and right. blonde hair and all that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, that's a, I hadn't even thought of it in those terms. But that's, a, that's a great way to understand it. So I think that kind of hits a lot of the main things I wanted to do. Um, and it's interesting because we're talking about how relevant this is about movies that were, at least with X2 and X3, almost 20 years old by now. The right. other is more recent. Um, but I think it's, it's just one more way in which this... I love the X-Men because you can make them about almost anything. But I think it's just it's important to recognize the way in which these were, especially with Brian Singer, but they you know, they were about a number of different things. But that uh, No, not with uh, Brian Singer. But that especially with X2, X3, and then with what Brian Singer did, that they really were looking at queerness, looking at disability, and, and some great great questions of, of the metaphor there. Is there any other points that we haven't gotten into or questions you wanted to, to dive into or points you wanted to make? There's a there's a side point about the metaphor extending into the larger X universe, uh, specifically about Deadpool being so popular. Oh, go for it now, um, because in that extended metaphor, Deadpool, of course, is the kind of invisible has become the spokesperson for a lot of the invisible queerness, right? Mm-hmm. Deadpool's pan, for example, and like right. absolutely identifies as that. Deadpool has severe body dysmorphia, right? Mm, like yeah. he has severe dysphoria. Um and all of these things within those things we see that he's grown to accept that about himself kind of. I mean his entire first movie is about the idea that he has to cure himself, he has to fix right. himself because or else the woman he loves won't love him. Right. And then it turns out she loves him just fine. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. There's a great metaphor there as well. Uh, and especially, like, I feel that deeply as a as an AMAB NB. Mm-hmm. Um, because as a as a you know, pan uh, just for the um, you want to explain what that is for those? Who, uh, oh, sure, uh, sure. Uh, so I'm a non-binary person or NB, uh, and then AMAB is assigned male at birth. Uh, when I was born, the, they looked at the piece of paper that said I was born, um, which we use in this country. And they checked male, and that's what I got enculturated with for the majority of my life. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I hadn't thought about Deadpool in those terms before, but I think you're right. There's a great metaphor there, and there's, I mean, there's many reasons why those movies are so popular, but I do think that's a that's a big part of it as well. You know that he he's kind of taken that metaphor even further. Absolutely. Well, and and you see that a lot with with uh, a certain subsect of non-binary people that they identify with that sort of character. You know, mm-hmm. they, they characterize themselves as raccoons and goblins and gremlins is a, is a term that's used awful, an awful lot. Right. The, um, the cryptid love. Right. Cryptid love. Uh, and of course, cryptid love represent. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's an interesting thing there as well. Um, and here I, I want to be very careful about, I'm talking about two different identities that I connect with that are by no means the same, but I think that there's a overlap there because there's a lot of connection with disability there as well. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, very much um, Deadpool story is also one you could see of disability. I think it's not coincidence that his, you know, uh, his his blind roommate becomes an important character in the story as well. Mm-hmm. And just Absolutely. that idea of accepting your body as it is. Um, I, I, as so, you know, my body will always look fundamentally different in a way that like, you know, if I'm rolling down the street in my wheelchair and my leg is off, like little children will gasp and you know, can stare and stop and point. And sometimes older people will do the same mm-hmm. thing. And it can be incredibly uncomfortable sometimes. It can also be kind of awesome, you know? And I think that there is that, 
Deadpool's willingness to to thrive and to cherish it, you know, I'm now part of a TikTok community of people who post TikToks about doing crazy things with their, um, you know, disability stuff, like people who have bionic arms and put, you know, googly eyes on it and stuff like that. Just all kind of crazy things like that. They're about saying like, look, my body's different and weird and people are going to look at me weird. So instead of trying to look normal, I'm going to celebrate that and love it and let it flourish. Um, I think people are doing that with... There's some folks who are very comfortable wanting to be a part of a gender binary, just not what they're assigned at birth, and that's great. And there's other people who are wanting to put googly eyes on their gender, for <laughs> to take that metaphor. Absolutely. And I think, <clears throat> I think that that's um, – there's a great conference I used to go to called Transcending Boundaries. It was all about looking at kind of intersectionality and the way different identities connect. And some of the best connections that happened there were about issues of disability and issues of transness. I think that – someone like Deadpool really speaks to that because what he's talking about and what he's a metaphor for really hits on both queerness, trans especially, and disability. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the only other one point I was going to bring up is um, the movie's interesting use of Leech and Bolivar Trask mm, through the, go, through go the films. Uh, because the people that are presenting us with the cure are visibly what we consider disabled. Right, mm. Leech is in a wheelchair the entire time, and he's in a he's in a like a zero mobility wheelchair, right? Right. Um, and Bolivar Trask is a dwarf, is and and to use a archaic medical term, um, but suffers from dwarfism and sees mutants as freaks, right? Right. And so that's a very simple set of visual metaphors that we're given as people that that drive home that point you were making about disability and about right what it means from the disabled community to want to cure a thing as opposed to from perhaps the queer community right no i think i think it's a very interesting point i i i admit um dwarfism i think like um deafness is one where i i i think there's some debate about where it where it does or does not fall within disability and so i've never been quite sure about that but i think you're right that that um the way Trask is portrayed, it definitely raised some of those questions once again. Mm-hmm. Well, Brand, thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, as always, fans, I hope this is going to be an ongoing conversation. We'd love to know your thoughts. Um, and I'll make sure Brand is plugged into our social media stuff so that uh, they can respond as well. If you've got questions, if you've got thoughts, let us know. You can find us on Facebook or uh, Twitter by searching for The Ethical Panda. On Twitter, it's EthicalPanda77. On Facebook, it's just The Ethical Panda. You can also go to our Stranded Panda uh, chat group. This podcast is a proud part of the Stranded Panda podcast network. And so there you can find lots of great stuff about um, this podcast as well as all the other podcasts that I'm connected to and other great podcasts about the MCU, DC Universe, Star Trek, Star Wars, lots of great stuff there. Um, All that's in the show notes. uh, Or you can find it just by searching for Stranded Panda. Go to strandedpanda.com or search for Stranded Panda on Facebook. So... On behalf of my brand, myself, thank you all so much for being a part of this conversation, and have a great day. <laughs>